In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. Good morning and welcome, especially to our Presbyterian siblings from across the courtyard. It's so nice to have you here. I don't know if any of you are Brigadoon fans, by the way, this has nothing to do with the sermon. Um, but I always want to say on Sundays like this, um, you know, this is the second week of our miracle. No? No Brigadoon fans? Okay, thank you, a couple of you. If you don't know what that is, you'll have to go watch the movie with Sid Charisse. It's fantastic. Um, and they have this miracle where they disappear into the Scottish fog for a number of years overnight. And they say, this is the first day or the second day of our miracle. So this is the second week of our miracle of Presbyterians and Episcopalians worshiping together, which we'll do all month. The next two will be over on the other side. And we will be grateful for the hospitality of our Presbyterian partners. But now I'll preach a sermon instead of talk about Brigadoon. How many of you were, were awake last night or awakened by that incredible storm? I have to tell you, that's a preacher's dream right there. It's perfect. It aligns with the gospel in just this perfect, fantastic way. I don't know about you, but I was awake for a big chunk of it. Uh, my daughter slept through it. My son did not. He was not upset, but he was awake. And so we sat in the rocking chair for almost the whole thing, looking out the window at the lightning, listening to the thunder as it passed by. And occasionally the thunder was big enough that it was sort of shaking the house. I mean, it was close and it was big. It was pretty impressive, wind and pouring rain. Nice timing with this gospel. Because where we find the disciples in the gospel this morning, Jesus has put them in a boat and sent them to the other side of the sea. And he's left them kind of to their own devices. He's gone up the mountain to pray, the gospel tells us, to look for that sheer silence probably that Elijah experiences in the first text that I'm not going to dwell on, but it's a fantastic text and one of my favorites about how we find God in the silence in the mountains. And so while the disciples are making their way across to the other side, the waves and the wind starts to kick up. And anyone who's ever been on a boat in the middle of strong winds or a big storm will tell you that there is some really sort of terrifying helplessness to that moment. You want to get to the shore. Perhaps in a lot of cases you can even see where it is you want to get to, but no matter what you do, it feels like you can't. No matter how hard you try, it's this thing on the horizon that you can't quite get to because the elements are much, much stronger than we are. And in my own experience, it sort of has made us look weak. Even if we're all sort of doing all the right things and trying to catch the wind if you're sailing, or even if you have a great motor on the back of that boat and you're doing your best, it's a reminder to us that we are small in comparison to the elements, in comparison to God's creation and the power of the sea, the power of the wind, the power of all the things around us that are bigger than we are. And so even though probably many of these disciples were fishermen, I have to believe that quite a few of them, if not all of them, were scared. Now, this story in Matthew might remind you of another story. There's two storm stories in the Gospel of Matthew. 
The first one is a few chapters before this, where Jesus is asleep in the boat. I think most people are more familiar with that story. He's sound asleep in the middle of the storm. The disciples kind of start to freak out. They go to him and they shake him and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? And of course he wakes up, tells the wind and the water to calm down, and they do. And he shows them in that moment that he is able to control the wind and the waves. He proves his strength over the elements, over the things that we can't control. But this time the story is a little different. This time we hear about wind and waves, and then Jesus appearing, walking on the water out to their boat. And they think he's a ghost. Now it's important for us to know, because our context is very different, that at the time, this idea of walking on water was seen as proof of divine power. Meaning that folks only thought that the gods, because of course we're in the middle of the Roman Empire, folks only thought that the gods could do this. But it was also seen as a symbol of arrogance and tyranny. It's not a good vision. It's something that only arrogant humans who wanted to be gods would try to do. So it's hard to miss the fact that Jesus is making a point. Certainly the disciples call it right at the end of the passage when they say, surely you are the Son of God. That may well have been the desired effect. It's another step along the way where Jesus reveals more of himself to the people closest to him. The difference is that in Matthew's Gospel in particular, we have this contrast always in the text between Jesus and the Emperor between God's kingdom and the Roman Empire. And we saw that especially in the last few weeks as we heard those stories about parables. When Jesus taught us that the kingdom of heaven is something altogether different than this world might expect it to be, and altogether different than what this world might value. So while Jesus is revealing himself more and more to the disciples as God's son, He's also making a stark contrast between himself and the would-be gods of the empire. In all that he does in the Gospel of Matthew, this contrast is always present to show the difference between Jesus and the way of love and the empire and the people who lead it, like Tiberius and Caligula. We can never take Jesus and his kingdom completely out of the context in which they appear. So it's important to pay attention to that. And I think we see this contrast maybe most clearly this morning in Peter. Peter is often a lens in scripture that helps us to focus in on what matters, to focus in on faith. And one of the things that I love about Peter is that he is one of the most fallible human people consistently in these stories. Now, like the rest of the disciples, he gets things wrong from time to time. And if we're honest, that should be a comfort because we get things wrong from time to time, don't you think? And then we have to start again with renewed commitment. So for me, at least, it's a comfort to see that Peter consistently gets things wrong. 
and that even the people closest to Jesus who saw him most clearly have this same struggle. But here's the thing about Peter in this story. This moment has been interpreted in a whole host of ways, and rarely is Peter interpreted here in the best light. Lots of folks like to point to the arrogance of this moment. How could Peter possibly think that he could do what Jesus was doing? That he was good enough to walk on water too. The arrogance to think that he can do what the Son of Man can do. Not a great light. And then on the other side, people like to point to Peter's lack of faith, which admittedly Jesus also points out, but I, I think he does it in a slightly different way. Ye of little faith, he says, why did you doubt? And folks will harp on this idea that Peter got scared. And that's why he started to sink. He took his eyes off Jesus. Maybe he got distracted. Maybe he got cocky and thought that he could do it himself. There's a whole host of ways to interpret this moment. None of them are particularly kind to Peter. And then there's the idea that Peter is testing Jesus. What he says to Jesus in the text is, if it is you, then command me to come to you. Meaning, I don't, you said it's you, but I don't believe you, so prove it to me. Prove to me that it's you. A test. Maybe even a negotiation. So lots of ways to interpret this passage, none of them particularly kind to Peter. Now, perhaps there's some truth in some of them. Maybe there's a little truth in all of them. But I wonder what happens this morning if we look at Peter with the kind of generosity that we might want someone to have when they look at us. Rather than with this sort of very tempting and often very satisfying, but ultimately profoundly unchristian skepticism, criticism, and contempt. What if we look at our brother Peter with the eyes of love and compassion? Here he is in this boat, in the middle of some very intense wind, probably some very big waves. He and the disciples have probably done everything they can to get out of it, but it seems to be useless and they are stuck in the midst of this gale. And finally, they see a figure coming to them over the water, and Peter knows that it is, if it is somebody walking on the water, it's probably not a good thing. Which one of us would be excited to see a ghost or a, quote, God coming toward us on the water? He hears through the wind what he hopes is the voice of Jesus, but he lives in a time when it's very real for him and for all the disciples that voices appear that lie when they believed that there were ghosts and demons and false prophets who came especially and intentionally to lead them astray. So how can he know that this is Jesus? I wonder if this was just the quickest thing he could think of. Maybe ill-advised, but still the quickest thing he could think of. Maybe he thought, only Jesus would have the power to help me do that. So he proposes that this figure command him to come out and walk on the water. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. He does not know this is Jesus. He hopes that it's Jesus, but he doesn't know. And still he's getting out of the boat, into the water, 
into the wind, which seems pretty formidable, hoping that Jesus is going to come to him and help him. Maybe somewhere within him, he wants to be like Jesus. And so, God bless him, he takes that first step of faith and he finds that the water rises up to meet his feet. I have to believe he wobbles a little bit, but he takes the second and the third and he can't believe it. And then the wind kicks up and almost knocks him over. He begins to feel foolish and scared. After all, how could he have thought that he could do this? And because he loses focus, he begins to fall. And still, Jesus saves him. And the word there, by the way, is immediately, not in a couple minutes, not when Jesus felt like it. He saves him immediately. Reaches through the wind into the water, pulls him out and up into the boat. And as soon as he does that, the wind stops. Now at this point, the text tells us that the disciples worship him, which very likely means that they fell on their faces, that they're lying prostrate in the boat, face down, because Jesus has just revealed himself again as the Son of God. And because these people know, in the mind of the ancient world, that the interaction with the divine was not only a gift, it was profoundly dangerous, a fearsome and awe-inspiring thing. Now, I am not sure that I want to fault Peter for his desire to know and to be like Jesus. I am not sure that I want to fault Peter for trying to do the very thing that Jesus is doing. And I'm not sure that I can fault him either for getting the first few things right and then faltering. Now, if you know that you or someone else you know is perfect, by all means, please stand up. I'll be glad to know it. But so far, the only perfect person that I know of is Jesus. And so rather than punish Peter for his desire and his inability to be like Jesus, I think it's worth holding him up for it. Because we know that this isn't it for Peter. We know that Peter is going to go on to mess more things up many, many, many times. And each time he does that, he's going to come back to Jesus and try to fix it. He doesn't just fall down here after the first few steps and then walk away and say, well, I tried that, it didn't really work, thanks very much, I'm going to go find the next Messiah that comes along. He didn't do it perfectly, but he got some of it. The transformation wasn't complete, but he got started. We live in a world that pushes the image and the idea of perfection on us all the time. But it is usually false perfection. It's about appearances. It's about people who have to look younger and younger all the time. People who are afraid to say when they've made a mistake. God knows we're pushing our kids harder and harder 
to do all the things and be all the things and win all the things and smile, by the way, the whole time while they do it. And we know how well that's working out. We can see more and more clearly each day in our kids and in many adults that we are creating this incredible mental health crisis. The journey that we are on, both the journey of life and the journey of faith, is not about being perfect. No matter what they say on TV, no matter what we think they want to see on college applications, no matter what celebrities or CEOs might have to say about it. Unless you think that it's only outside of our walls, both here and on the other side of the courtyard, it is not. No church is perfect either. No clergy person, no vestry or session, right? Anyone want to contradict me? I'll be happy to hear that after church too. And praise Jesus for that. For the fact that we can all be imperfect and on the journey together, that the transformation has started, but that it isn't complete. Because we too, like Peter, are invited into this journey of becoming. That is what the Christian journey of faith is. And it begins with what Peter shows us, I think, when he, when he calls out to Jesus. He wants to learn to do what Jesus is doing. And he wants to learn how to sustain that desire. Now, for us who didn't have the privilege of being with him in person, being able to eat with him and touch him and hear him with our own ears, we have to look at Scripture and we have to look around for clues of him in the world to see signs of him and to learn how to want to be like him, to be brave enough to be like Peter, to get out of our own little boats, to be willing to risk ourselves for the sake of love and to do what Jesus is doing. And to be clear, when we see him in scripture, he is always doing the same thing. He's feeding people. He's loving people. He's making room at the table for all people. He's offering comfort and healing and shelter and rest. He's building justice. He's showing mercy. He's offering kindness and compassion. He's speaking to and respecting the dignity of people that society has cast out and left behind. This is what Jesus does in all of the Gospels over and over again in every interaction. And so this is what we are invited to do if we want to be like him, to find the lost and the least. Our job is to want to become like that and to become a little bit more like him every day as we try to share his love in the world, to be his, his hands and his feet, as we hopefully are brave enough to get out of our own little boats, So this week, I want to encourage you to think about what your boat is. To get out of your comfort zone. To get out of this false sense of security and this false sense of perfection that the world promises us and holds up before us like it's the ultimate attainable goal. To get out of predicted patterns of living that are created by isolation and privilege. I want to encourage you to see Jesus this morning and to do that by beginning with compassion for Peter.
And I want you to hear the good news of this text. That no matter what storm you are facing, Jesus is coming to you. And there is no wind, there are no waves, there is no storm that is stronger than the love of God for you. And you are meant to let that love change you, like Peter does. Peter is flawed and human, and he gets it wrong all the time. Praise Jesus for that. But he loves Jesus so much that he is willing to risk his life to get out of the boat and into the storm to go and be like him. And when he finds he's in trouble, he is smart enough to cry out and say, Lord, save me because he knows who he is, and he knows whose he is, and he knows where salvation is to be found. Amen.